Hi, welcome to Tabs Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Shabam Gard from White Tundra Investments. We're talking about oil. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tabs Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Shabam, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe, good to be here again. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It looks like you've been progressing along with your business, White Tundra Investments. How's that been going for the new year so far? Good, good. White Tundra has been good. Um, we have been uh, focused on quite a few things here uh, recently. Uh, I think the last time we spoke had a pretty uh, significant uh, public equity uh, positioning. In the meantime, kind of transitioning more into some of the junior names at this point. Um, I believe that some of the macro uh, oil and gas macro has been getting clearer um, past this sort of SPR and Russia and, and China a COVID uh, blur, if you will. Um, so, so as the macro continues, I think there's there's opportunities to move um, down market without taking on any extra risk. And in fact, some of the valuations are are even better um, than some of the small to mid cap players that I was in and continue to hold, uh, which which themselves are trading at exceptional uh, levels. So, so kind of just just shifting strategy there a bit. And then as well as that, uh, moving into some private placements. So we've done two now, I believe, uh, since we last spoke. Uh, one is a, a private producer um, in North, South, well, Central Alberta. That's uh, that's the, that's kind of developing a new way of um, fracking uh, into an existing known geologic formation. And uh, the other one, uh, which was just announced yesterday, was a, a placement into Prospera Energy. Uh, a public a medium to heavy oil producer. So no, things are fantastic. Um, you know, having uh, still going to continue my Sunday sessions. So moving more into petroleum engineering topics this year. Last year was valuations, companies, junior deep dives, uh, junior company deep dives, uh, and all that. This year is more on like basin specific information, uh, engineering topics, enhanced oil recovery and talking about um, multinational companies' growth plans. So just more more overall broader uh, topics to get people, you know, just, just thinking outside the box a bit, uh, more so on macro plus the company side. Oh, that's awesome. So when you're looking at companies, do you tend to go for, you know, the best deal, the cheapest valuation, or the most efficient, you know, best oil producers? Or are you looking for more innovators, like new technology type deals? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, you know, we had a kind of inter interesting experience with the, uh, call it a private placement that I did uh, back in March of last year, where the geology was really good, um, but the management was was just not up to the task. They were not good technically, and they were also not willing to collaborate. Um, so kind of learning as I go through this cycle, of course, as well, you know, this is my my kind of first time uh, going through this. So, so lots of pros, lots of cons, but I think the one thing that has to be there is good geology. No matter who you are, you, you cannot make bad rock work, even in a, call it a really, really good oil price environment. The companies with better rock will just absolutely destroy you. So the geology has to be good. Uh, management, I like management these days that I can work with. They don't have to be the most accomplished, the most you know track record managements, but ones who are open to discussing ideas, ones who are open to um, kind of explaining what they do, uh, the more technically focused they are, the better, I think, in my opinion, uh, as long as me and my team can also verify uh, what they're saying as well. So so 
kind of technical. Um, then we look at the management side of things, and then we look at valuation. So um, am I gaining by going down market? That's that's what I always ask. And when we say gaining, there's two aspects to it. There's risk and there's reward. Uh, most of the time, the, the, the reward is usually higher um, because the more junior companies, small cap companies trade at lower valuations. So if you run a certain deck, uh, price deck going forward, you'll say, okay, we uh, have more reward in these names. There's potential for more upside. And I think it's the more of the risk part of the um, calculation that is being misunderstood. People see a company trading at 20, 30, 40 cents. They see X amount of shares and they say, oh, this thing is completely risk. It must be a high debt junior. That's a coin flip. And you know, people are just not doing the work. These companies, some of these are debt-free companies. Some of them have really, really strong assets um, that are that that haven't been capitalized for many, many years. Some of them have very strong backing from their debt holders, from large equity shareholders who have continued to support the company. So uh, I think the risk risk portion, uh, sorry, the, the risk portion, I believe, is being uh, misunderstood. And, and there's certain companies where I see, hey, we have more upside by moving down market. And also the risk is either the same or lower, um, especially the geologic risk. So we take all that, we put it into sort of this, this there's no calculator. It's, it's more of a subjective art, not a science. Uh, and we say, yeah, you know, these these companies make sense to invest in, and 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 that's how I do my portfolio allocation. Of course, position sizing is of the utmost importance. Junior companies don't have the safety net if something goes wrong, like a major spill, they have a major pipeline break, anything like that. So always be cognizant of that, and then um, yeah, just 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 risk tolerance as well, right? I I the way that I run my portfolios, I have a much higher tolerance for risk uh, than than maybe the average investor, even in the oil and gas space. So uh, yeah, so I just, um, I guess, take all of those, make a decision, and then we decide on position sizing and um, kind of run run with it. We, we're not investing in these companies as a flippers or trying to scalp sense. These are businesses. And, and one of the things that maybe in the commodity space, some of the people that are new have to change their mindset around these that that you're not buying what is right now. You're buying the business and their business plan for the next 12, 18, 24 months. So um, I believe Stanley Druckenmiller has a has a really uh, important quote about this, that, that when you're buying commodity-based uh, businesses, you have to look and have a vision for what this company ends up at uh, in the future, as opposed to XYZ is wrong with it today. Well, that's really interesting that, you know, so a long-term hold, long-term mindset with these guys. And what I, what I found interesting about that is when you first start getting into investing, everybody says, oh, you know, penny stocks or stocks that are valued at pennies, let's say, you know, 15 cents or whatever, those are ultra high risk. But from what you're saying is perhaps if you do your homework, they aren't. And also you can, you know, reduce some risk by holding long as well with a lot of companies. It just uh, it raises a question for me in oil or oil and gas production. How does scale come into that? Does the scale like, a, you know, you can't really compete with Walmart and retail, but in oil and gas, how does it play out with scale? 
Yeah, so fantastic question. Scale drives cost efficiencies. It drives savings. It, it lets you get better deals on debt. It lets you have a lower cost of capital. It lets you have access to possibly more qualified board of director personnel because you are able to kind of bring them into these bigger companies and also uh, able to compensate them properly for, for their, their sort of information and edge that they bring to the company. So there is a definite edge to being in bigger companies. But I look at it a different way. If we are in a structurally bullish oil market environment, which you almost have to believe that if you're in the oil and gas space anyway, to some extent, then let me put it this way. The companies that don't have scale will get scale. And there's a wedge there that is an additional bonus to your cash flow, your free cash flow. Your operating cost per, bar per barrel might come down from $30 to $20. That $10 per barrel wedge is the same as if oil price went up $10 a barrel because you're getting an extra $10 a barrel of net back. So to me, I see it as an opportunity that companies that aren't quite there yet, they're still building their... Uh, call it uh, production base. They're still growing. They're still finding efficiencies in what they do. is a is a double whammy for me. And and you see this proven out in in many many companies uh, over over even the last couple of years. You look at the 2008 to 2014 a sort of range. Many growth growth junior companies were doing the same thing. So when I look again, when I look 18 to 24 months out, I say operating cost today is this. When the company is 3x 5x the size operating cost becomes this, I get an extra net back. In the meantime, yes, I have to pay more because we don't have the scale. So we have to compete with some of the bigger producers who have been able to pay back debt much faster, who have been able to call it have bigger dividends much faster, buy back their shares much faster because they already have the scale. They already have efficiencies. When oil prices averaged $95 a barrel in 2022, they got the full advantage of that. And they took that extra cash and they did whatever they wanted to do with it, whether it's acquisitions, buybacks, you know, et cetera. And um, I guess just, just to your earlier point, uh, I'll put it this way. Athabasca oil was in the under 20 cent range in 2020. It was, it's one of my biggest wins, you know, so far in my investing career. Journey Energy last year was under a dollar, dollar, dollar 50 or so uh, at some point. Um, and not last year, in 2021. It was under a dollar, dollar fifty, and people said this is a complete junk. We don't know this. The you know what's happening turned out to be one of the biggest winners. Last year, a company like Rock Resources, you know, 20 cents, 18 cents, they did a raise with warrants. People said, oh, the, you know, we don't believe this. Yeah, management is underqualified. Rock Resources was the top TSX or TSXB performing uh, oil and gas name last year. So where there's, you know, if you're willing to do a deeper dive into these companies, I'm not saying buy every single thing under 10 cents, not by any means, but if you're willing to do the work, look at the, te the technicals, look at the management, there's hidden gems out there that are completely mispriced and all it takes is time to uh, uh, prove out their value. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You're getting in on these companies early, so they're not quite as efficient, but as they grow, they'll, they'll gain that scale and then perhaps you'll start to see that coming back in the income statements. I think that's a great, great point there. Um, which brings me to a question I wanted to ask you is, 
for somebody who's sort of, you know, new to the space or coming in, what would you suggest they like to look at when they're building an oil and gas portfolio? Like say you're looking at, you know, five stocks, you don't want all the same type, I'm assuming. So, you know, how would you diversify within that sector? Sure. Yeah. So I would say before anybody spends any time looking at any oil and gas companies, I would spend a significant amount of time on the macro. Understand what the macro is, supply, demand, inventories, figure out what are the main bear cases against oil and figure out what are the pushbacks to that. So the recession bear case, the EVs are going to kill oil demand bear case, the windfall tax bear case, right? Understand those risks, understand why they might already be baked in or how we're dealing with these risks, and then have a clear view on where oil prices are going. If you are going to be running sensitivities saying, I want to downside protect myself for $50 oil, but I also want upside $220 oil, you're going to end up with this mishmash of companies where you're going to get uh, pushed out of names because of the inherent volatility. Uh, you may not be uh, fully understanding what you're buying. So spend time with the macro, have a very defined range where you see oil prices going. And yeah, if you want downside protection, there's there, there's names that fit that. If you want upside torque, there's names that fit that. And then just buy, you know, three or four or five, as you said, you want to build a portfolio, you buy those top names that fit that bill. Some of the companies can be very similar companies. Like for example, my top five, when I look at my portfolio, um, are all lower decline producers with huge net asset values that are are not being reflected in the stock price. They have very, very large tax pools, which gives them two to three years of runway that while things are cheap, they're able to buy back shares. They're able to pay dividends. They're able to make acquisitions. Whereas their peers are paying a 23% cash tax on their, call it net income or free cash flow, whatever number that ends up being used, right? So there's an inherent advantage and, and and all my companies are like that. They, they have exceptional free cash flow. They have low capital requirements and they have runway to growth. So, you know, again, I'm not paying what the company is doing right now. I have this vision. And if the company has a runway to grow, maybe not right now, maybe in 12 months, maybe in 18 months. Now they come out and say, oh, we have this uh, untapped acreage sitting right here where we can grow another 10,000 barrels per day or 5,000 barrels per day. Investors would like to see that possibly, let's say 18 months from now, oil is $100 a barrel, the strip is 95. Now all of a sudden investors say, we want growth. You want the companies to already have assets and packages and land, as opposed to them panicking and then going and buying stuff when things may have already re-rated. So I'm saying a lot of things as to like what could or would or may happen, but you have to think that way in the oil and gas industry. It, you know, looking at valuations today and running any sort of sensitivities is is just wrong because the strip pricing has never been accurate. All the strip pricing tells you is, are we in backwardation or contango? And what is the price that I can hedge at? That's it. It doesn't tell you anything other than that. So I think having a more full-on mindset around it um, is, is really important. And I think why what you end up finding in the oil and gas space is People either are not in oil and gas or they have 50, 70, 80% of their portfolio in oil and gas because it takes so much time and effort to understand the industry and be happy 
or, or content with the volatility that you either get completely shook out or you say, I'm going to spend the time, I'm going to learn the industry, I like the valuations, and I'm in it for the next two, three, four, five years um, kind of thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the macro was what keeps us here. And it just builds that confidence in the companies you own. Um, so why don't we dive into that a little bit? I thought I would start with macro, just kind of ask if there's anything you learned from 2022 in the greater picture, and are there any lessons there that you may carry over into this year? Uh, for sure, yeah. So, so I'm actually going to be discussing this more in detail uh, on my February 5th uh, kind of 2022 review uh, presentation. Haven't really had the time to to really think about it uh, properly, but I think you know a couple of the things are that the market moves quick. If you are not prepared and paying attention, the oil and gas market will completely humble you in a matter of two, three, four weeks. So, really have to be paying attention have to be following your equities, even if not, like, I'm not saying watch it from, you know, 934 every single day. I'm saying just keep an eye on them, keep an eye on the macro, any major changes. Last year, we saw Russia, we saw China, we saw the SPR, we saw Libyan barrels come on and off the market. So, you know, four major, major things that happened last year, um, and they all happened at, at, at very similar times. So kind of looking at, these things, understanding their impact early and making a decision as to kind of, do you want to hold or do you want to sell sort of thing? So, or buy, I guess, yeah, all three. So, so that I think was one learning. The other learning was there's a lot of people, um, and this could be just because I'm on Twitter, but I also notice it within friends and family that are in the oil and gas space is a lot of people are not, are not convinced. They're not convicted. They still think oil and gas is, you know, even though they have investments in it, they still might think it's on its way out. They're spooked by every news release. Uh, you know, every single time something happens, they're like, what's the downside? What's the downside? And people don't see what the upside case is. You know, what, what if China reopened way faster than it ever has before? What if Russian barrels one day completely drop off, a million, two million barrels drop off? What if Libya gets into civil war and a million barrels a day drops off the market just like that tomorrow? I don't see people asking me these questions. So one of my biggest learnings was people are skewed negative always on oil and gas investments compared to something like a Tesla or Amazon. It's like, oh, we're going to take over the world. This is like a given. They, they, they don't want to talk about the negatives. It's like, oh, we're, we're going to have... EVs 100% by 2035. Why are you even questioning this, right? So the different sectors have different bearish skews and bullish skews. And I think the, the oil and gas side has, has definitely a negative skew. So you have to think about that. That's baked into the way these companies trade. And so if you don't have that skew, maybe that's, uh, that's an opportunity. And, and that's the way I put my money where my mouth is, uh, you know, with my investments. So a couple of learnings there. Um, I think uh, you know lots lots of things happened in 2022 on the macro side that nobody had a good idea on. We were all waiting for the data to come in and then figuring out how how it made sense. So um, you know, a couple of the learnings there, and and I think uh, as I get more time to reflect here over the next week or two, I'm gonna really be thinking about um, you know some of the other things, how I've made adjustments because. Um, 
you know, some of the things happen subconsciously and then, and then you later realize, okay, this is what happened. So, um, you know, I think 2022 was a fantastic year for a lot of oil and gas investors. Um, and, and I think 2023 is just gonna, just gonna continue that party uh, because a lot of the, the call it the issues that we had in 2022 have been resolved uh, for the most part uh, at this time. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic because the, like fear is what I'm talking about. Because even with podcasting, like, and I've talked to lots of people about this, if you put a big banner fear on your thumbnail, like you're more likely to get clicks and, you know, you just come out with a news article, like the stock's going to tank, everybody's going to click on it, but you come out with a bullish article and you get a third, third of the clicks. So I don't know why yeah. that is. It's just human nature. We like to be afraid or you know, you see fear and you want to, you know, learn if it's going to hurt you or whatever it is. But certainly with, certainly with oil and gas, it's very prominent that way. seems like, you know, people see an electric vehicle and they're like, oh, it's, it's going to take over, even though there's one out of every 50. But anyways, um, just moving on, like with, you know, with 2022, like, as you said, China was a big story. And mm -hmm. uh, what I noticed from that was that everybody seemed to look at China in a inflation or deflation view. So they're saying, you know, is there going to be a, you know, commodity, commodity demand and create more inflation or is, you know, perhaps supply chain increase, you know, the output from China, maybe that'll be deflationary. But to me, both of those things are bullish for, for oil. You either get China sucking more commodities or you get China pumping out more goods. So, you know, more ships and all of that kind of stuff. I guess the only downside for China would be is if they go into a recession, but I don't know. I just thought I would ask you what your view is on China and all of that macro stuff. Sure, yeah. So China is the world's biggest energy consumer. There's, there's countries like the US that consume more oil. They consume certain other products more than the other. But when you look at almost every single base metal, almost every single construction material, every single source of energy, China is the world's biggest economy. So as they reopen, there's, there's, there is going to be inflation just from them sucking in all these goods uh, for sure. So, so they're going to be pulling on the, on the base energy cycle, energy being sort of what goes into everything. So, so there's naturally going to be uh, inflationary forces to that. China's reopening, I think, is going to shock a lot of people. They keep comparing numbers that in 2019, we were doing this and that. Uh, and they fail to mention that China, going into 2019, uh, oil consumption was increasing by 600,000 barrels a year. Uh, their internal, call it, airport and airline consumption was rising, ex like not exponentially, but, but still at a pretty high pace. And the fact that they're selling 25 million vehicles every single year. So all, all that has to come back. There is a pent-up demand aspect of it that we saw in the US, that we saw in other parts of Asia, that is also going to happen. And the fact that China is not just China, the business activity and travel activity within China affects Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, US, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, you know, I can go on and on. Um, and, and one of the big data points that I can give you for that is that the average Chinese traveler that, that, that leaves China, or, or sorry, the average Chinese travel, 
traveler in the US spends three times as much as much as the any like the rest of the travelers and how much they spend on a visit to the US. So you can just look at it in terms of population terms. You got to look at it. What is the overall global economic impact? And there's going to be a lot because I believe China is moving from a production economy to a consumption economy. So they're buying more vehicles, they're buying more TVs, they're buying more refrigerators, they're building more bigger buildings and skyscrapers, they're building airports, they're buying airplanes. So as that happens, that's 1.4 billion people moving into consumerism. So, you know, how is it going to play out in terms of global inflation, deflation? I think it's inflationary because not only is China consuming more energy in order to produce goods for the world, their own internal population now is becoming a consumerism economy. So there's a global kind of pull on um, demand-based pull inflation that's happening on, on, on not just petroleum products, but like everything in general. So that's how I see this playing out. The data supports it, the overall mindset supports it. Um, and, and you know, the people that are arguing against this are using data points that are 50,000 foot looking. They're, they don't have the exact data on what's happening. They, they just say, oh, the population went down by a million. Okay, the rest of the population, 1.4 billion people are consuming way more energy per capita than they used to. And that's been a steady line over the last 20 years. So, so they refer to one like weird point on the side that, that doesn't really tell you the full story. Um, so when we look at, and I'm gonna, I can talk about China for, for a while, so just stop you when you have to, uh, but, but there's, certain, there's certain cities within China that, okay, they're up 10% petroleum demand versus 2019. I can show you cities where the traffic congestion index is up 600% since 2019. So again, if you look at a 50,000 foot view, you say, oh, the population is declining. People don't want to consume and all this. The, the localized one by one by one modularized data will show you that what's happening behind the scenes is that that country is growing. They're growing substantially. They're building new international airports. People are buying vehicles by the millions per year. People are buying motorcycles. People are buying barbecues. They're building roads. Um, and they're consuming every single power source. Oil, natural gas, coal, LNG, hydropower, solar, wind. They are the leaders in deploying these things and consuming these things. So on the overall, anybody counting China out is... Um, you know, just just looking at things from the sky and they're saying this, well, you know, go, go into things on a deeper level and you'll see the consumption that can come out of that economy is just insane. Like the, the world cannot even afford to have China get to the levels, uh, some of the levels that they, you know, the, the average Chinese consumer may want because the the American and the North American and the European consumer might start to get priced out uh, of of energy, which we're already seeing, right? The people are 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 getting priced out of natural gas in places like California. People are getting priced out of uh, able to buy gasoline when 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 prices went up there uh, last summer. So uh, it's all happening all at once, and uh, I just look forward to see how it's all going to play out because 
the other big factor now is uh, is India, and and I'm not going to go into it, but uh, that's another massive population. Air India next week, um, if this is correct, next week is going to announce the biggest airplane order ever, ever. So you would think it would be a United or a Southwest or a Delta or a Etihad or a Emirates. No, it's Air India. 495 jets are rumored to be ordered all in one order. They wouldn't be doing that if they thought oil and gas was on its way out. No, would they? Yeah, and it's obviously jet fuel is, you know, one of the main contributors to the oil demand. And it's interesting you brought up India because I actually have India written down right after China. <laughs> and um, what uh, another thing that I have written down is I just wrote it down as a job note, emerging markets and who, because this is what you, you typically hear as says demand goes down in Western nations, the emerging markets pick up that, that demand and the oil supply remains tight. So, you know, when, when I say emerging markets, what, what comes to mind for you? I think China is number one. India mm. is number two. Southeast Asia is your number three. And then um, call it, I'm going to lump these all in one, and I'll tell you why. Nigeria and the Middle East are, are sort of 3A, 3B, let's say, uh, with mm. Southeast Asia. So China, we've already discussed. India, uh, building 9,000 kilometers of highway a year, building mm. 10 to 15 airports a year. Again, selling their, their vehicle sales have, are just rising now. They, they haven't uh, got there yet. Still picking up, but rising very fast. Their motorcycle sales are looking really good. Uh, the, the overall petroleum consumption uh, is looking strong. And the government's giving out massive infrastructure bills, you know, huge subsidies into getting these projects go, uh, going, bridges, uh, you know, skyscrapers, building business towers, areas like that, that, that really allow people to then be in, in this like globally connected uh, thing. The internet, uh, what do you call it? The, the number of people that have access to the internet is rising really fast in India. So what took China 20 years to do, India might do it in 10, 12 years. So all these things, I mean, we're still watching the data as it comes in. A lot of the data or petroleum consumption within India is diesel so far. And that's looking strong, but but we're watching for the gasoline number to now start rising at a, at a very, very fast pace, you know, 10, 10, 12% per year, um, roughly, let's say. Uh, I should have better, better, more accurate numbers on that, but I think it's it's 10 to 12% per year uh, that we're watching for gasoline. And then Southeast Asia, the Philippines economy just grew. Yesterday was posted 7.2% in Q4 last year. Wow. Well, you told me federal funds rates are going up. People told me that stronger dollar is going to destroy emerging markets. They just grew at 7.2% in Q4. So these emerging markets are hungry. They are determined. Their governments are supporting them. So Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, you know, Indonesia and Singapore are like already pretty modernized, but there's still large parts of the population that, that want petroleum products there. So, so, so I'll clump that all into one because all of those are going to benefit greatly, uh, including Bangladesh, from India and China's dominance and, and wanting to build more uh, inter-country inter connections as kind of time goes on there. 
you know, big in the textile manufacturing in the semiconductor space, uh, in the overall kind of just, just business to uh, tourism, where are the Indian citizens going to travel to? Well, somewhere close to them, right? So, um, so that's Southeast Asia. And then the three B is your Middle East and Nigeria. These two countries have massive populations or area and a country have massive populations that are quite heavily subsidized. And they're also oil producers. So when oil prices are higher, the, these countries do really well in terms of the money coming into their coffers. You can run something like a Saudi Arabia or UAE. Look at their GDP growth from 2010 to 2014. And then look at their GDP growth from 2014 to 2020. It's a tale of two worlds. Why? Oil prices, that's it. There's, there's basically one factor there. Yeah, there could be other secondary things, but for the most part, it's oil prices. So as we now go on, I would not be surprised to see 8, 10, 12, 15% GDP per capita growth uh, in, these, uh, in these countries. And guess what? Petroleum is subsidized. So people there are paying 40 cents a gallon, you know, 40, 50 cents a gallon for uh, fuel. And what are people going to start buying? They're going to start buying vehicles. They're going to start... Uh, using their discretionary income on these things. Uh, they're gonna have better paying jobs because the, the country just is gonna have more construction. It's gonna have more uh, global business development, more tourism, more IT technology, whatever. And uh, as people get higher paying jobs, they want leisure activities, which is travel, buying bigger homes, uh, um, buying vehicles, consuming gasoline and uh, natural gas and other things. So. It's a X factor that I think the world has almost uh, forgot that global oil demand was growing million plus barrels per day from 2014 to 2020 with these large populations in these oil producing countries effectively stunted and flatlined. So if that changes and India and China continue to grow and Southeast Asia continues to grow, yeah, watch out uh, because some of those higher price WTI calls that people are right now laughing about um, and making jokes about um, may, may be coming to a screen near you sooner than people expected. Yeah, for sure. You never know what's going to happen out there. And everything you said makes sense. And that that's the hardest part with this whole deal is, you know, totally makes sense. And then somebody can come on with the, you know, the bear side and that makes sense too. And it's just so hard to decipher um, what you think is going to happen. But you really brought up a good point with the US dollar. I wanted to ask you about that as well, because let's let's you know game it out for a minute and say this isn't as inflationary as it could be. You know, the, the rates are gonna have to stay high. They may even have to hike further, and that's gonna create a strong dollar. And then of course that's gonna make oil expensive for other countries. So how how do you see that playing out with you know a, a high US dollar? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think the U.S. dollar, I don't want to make a case on where it's going, but but let's assume that it's going to be going higher because of the, the factors you mentioned. So I don't think the emerging markets are affected because the their own internal GDPs and their own internal income per capita is going up a lot faster than how the the oil priced in USD has changed. Now, 
natural gas is a bit different because there's there's other factors why Europe and Asia pay way more than America. I'm, I'm talking about oil, strictly oil and petroleum products, liquid petroleum products. So they're not as affected as maybe people were thinking. And we see this in some of their summer 2022 GDP numbers. The other factor is that petroleum got to 100 million barrels of consumption for a reason. It is so damn efficient. Like a farmer somewhere in South America, in India, that converts from using manual labor to now using diesel power tractors can farm 10, 20, 30, 40 times the land that they had. So, so and, and much faster and with no safety risk to people getting injured, people getting sick, people leaving their job, you know, whatever happens. So it's more, it's more efficient, it's more effective, it's more reliable. And in some cases, 5, 10, 15, 20 times more efficient. So even if the price goes up 20, 30, 40%, now you're, you're competing against something that's 5x at least more efficient. So the numbers always add up to more petroleum consumption as long as people can kind of get to that level to afford it because that allows them to make more money. It allows them to, to just become bigger at what they do. It allows economies to, to, to become hard GDP economies. So this is one of the factors. I think that's, that's really important. The underlying uh, cherry on this cake is that many of these countries that are non-petroleum producers often have massive tax on the petroleum products. India, for example, almost 50% of the price of gasoline is tax. So as the country consumes more and as the, uh, call it the governments want to support the development in these countries, they have a massive, like huge chunk there that they can slowly eat into. And let's say 50% of, call it, million barrels per day of gasoline consumption in, in India, once that gets to 1.5 million or 2 million barrel, uh, barrels per day, the government only needs to tax it at 25 or 30%, and they get the same effective absolute dollar coming into their revenues. So there's, there's a natural benefit from that way as well. And we saw Japan doing this. We saw some of the European countries doing this. Uh, we see some of the other countries in Asia that are doing this. Uh, and India as well cut their a gasoline tax quite quite significantly last year, and I think that just continues uh, as as time goes on. The they're not going to slow down their economy if they can give up a little bit of tax revenue and make up for it in the quantity and the and GDP generation, which just leads to more tax revenue. So the whole system just works better this way. Um, yeah, in my perspective, and and you're seeing and you're seeing governments execute on this. This is not me saying this as like it could happen. It's already happening as we speak. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the the general consensus usually is as the U.S. dollar goes up, crude price goes down because you know it gets more expensive and people can't afford it as much, and there's some demand destruction mm -hmm. from that. But it sounds like you know, the macro point of view here is we could maintain a higher, you know, $80 a barrel, even with a, a strong US dollar. Um, right. And yeah, and yeah, just moving on. Um, one company that I wanted to bring up is uh, Meg Energy. And I, and I look at Meg because it's your 16% largest holding in your white tundra investment account. 
And it's also held in the nine point energy fund, which is Nuttles count. And um, I find that interesting because, you know, you guys are both, you know, big in the oil space. And I like interest, like listening to what both of you have to say. And he was talking about Meg's reserves. And he said it's something ridiculous, like 36 years of reserves that they have. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about Meg and why you like them as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, I could talk about Meg all day long. So it's 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 such a simple company to understand. They have one asset that they spent five, six, seven billion dollars on um, in in kind of the early 2010s. Let's say, you know, for argument's sake, um, there's there's decades of SAGD technology that people you know research, spent hundreds of thousands of hours on to get to where we are in the oil sands, and the company is already operating. So the asset's already operating. They have about 35 years of what we call 1P reserve. So reserves that are proved and um, uh, proved developed and proved undeveloped. And then they have another 20 years on top of that of, of probable reserves, which means there's over a 50% chance that these reserves do exist and can be produced. So 35 years now, what's, what's the way these calculations are ran? And, and why is Meg not getting the full benefit? Because how do companies like to run things, banks and whatnot? They'll say, okay, you're producing this much cash flow. We'll put a 10% discount on future cash flows. We'll put actually, because we think oil is dying, we'll put a 15% discount on your cash flows. Oil is not going away in six years. But when you run a 15% DCF model, everything past six, seven, eight years effectively becomes worthless. So now let's flip that on its head. In a world where oil is getting harder to find, the exploration success rates are going down, inflation on new developments is skyrocketing. We have less and less capex that's being put into the ground in the oil and gas industry. Any projects that do want to go ahead, we don't have the labor, we don't have the supply chain, proper parts, and we have constant you know, uh, uh, headwinds from ESG, from environmentalists, from the First Nations in some cases, not in all cases, in some cases that can slow down projects. Any project that's already built and producing should be worth way more. So when I run my DCF models, I run 5% discount rates, in some cases even lower than that, because oil is gonna be around for the next 35 to 55 years, which is the reserve life of MEG. And I think oil as, it, as time goes on becomes more valuable as opposed to less valuable, especially projects that are already producing and have the reserves. So when I think about it that way, you know, I buy Meg and it's down, like not that it's down from when I bought it, but the volatility around it means it could be down 20% in two weeks and then it could be up 30% in the next three weeks. So as long as I can live within the volatility, I know what's coming on the other side, which is that people will realize we're in an energy scarcity cycle you could have a recession. What happens on the other side of the re of the recession? Did did half the world's population just die in a recession? No. So so on the other side of the recession, oil demand continues on. We don't have the supply. Projects that are already uh, producing barrels and have decades of reserves are more valuable, and the valuations will naturally just come back into the equation. And in the meantime they will come up and say, hey, by the way, we have very little risk now because uh, we just paid off 75 to 80% of our debt already. 
we are also buying back uh, almost 10 to 15% of our float every single year. And we also could pay another 5, 10, 15% dividend on top of that if we really wanted to. So when I see companies with, with this sort of runway that are so easy to explain, that are so easy to understand, it's one asset, it's one project, they're about 8 to 10% above their production numbers from last year even, and uh, just looking fantastic. They're saving interest by paying back all that debt. All that interest comes back into free cash flow. So very simple company to understand. And uh, they're, they're not doing anything that's, you know, like um, going out in all kinds of different places and you have to explain these things. It's, it's, it's just, I keep repeating myself. It's just so simple. And uh, for the portfolio that I run, which is a margin portfolio, I want assets with no, no geologic risk. I don't want to have to deal with any sort of CapEx exploration risk. It is what it is. And uh, it can stay there for many, many years. And, and I'll give you a visualization sort of exercise. When Husky first made an offer for this company in, uh, that would have been uh, 2018, about summer 2018, Husky Energy made an offer to buy Meg. It was roughly priced at $11 a share at that point. And, but the company had way more debt. So $11 per share plus the debt on top of that. Now, because it pay, paid back that debt, the same enterprise value is now about $20, $22 a share. So if Husky was willing to pay what is now $22 a share back then when oil prices were $65, $70, we're, we're staring into a macro cycle that's much, much higher from here onwards. And the supply isn't there. We have much better data on OPEX uh, spare capacity. We have much better data on US shale and how it's kind of flatlining here. We have much better data on world demand. It continues to go up despite EV penetration and all this. Sounds like a pretty compelling case to me. And uh, there's a reason it's my largest uh, holding in my portfolio. Yeah, I think that's a good overview of Meg there. And it's definitely one worth looking at if anybody's interested. Um, another thing that I've heard Nuttall say a couple of times this year was that this could be the year where companies have paid off enough debt that they can start rewarding their shareholders with buybacks or dividend increases or whatever they want to do. And, you know, we, we saw that come to fruition with the Chevron um, news yesterday because Nuttall came out with this uh, video January 16th. And then of course now yesterday, which is whatever January later in January and their $75 billion buybacks, 20% of their share float. So, I mean, mm -hmm. that is absolutely insane. What's your take on that? Do you think that's going to carry over throughout the sector or that's just Chevron? Oh, just, just fantastic news. You know, kudos to Chevron because they have done two things for me. Uh, the first thing they've done is they've proven that the even the blue chips are making so much money that they can you know afford to make these sorts of grandiose statements and back them up, uh, which when you look down market, the some of the companies are making even more money, right? So... They've done that for me. And the second thing that they've done for me is I was kind of wondering, okay, where can the oil supply come from? Okay, we, we talk about the oil sands. We talk about uh, offshore, deep water offshore, not the easy offshore, but the deep water offshore uh, and the Middle East, three, three places. The Middle East is kind of already spending what they want to spend. They don't have the reservoirs that they used to. They're, they're depleting reservoirs. Um, they also are moving offshore. So 
they're doing their thing. But the only companies that can ex explore or afford to spend deep water offshore and in the oil sands are the multinational companies. Chevron, Exxon, even like CNRL, Synovus, you know, we'll, we'll put them in there. They're, they're about a million VOEs per day now. So, you know, quite big, a uh, million plus VOEs per day. Uh, CNRL, uh, uh, Synovus, Suncor, Imperial, Exxon, Chevron, Total, Eni, um, Shell, BP, et cetera. Chevron just said, not said, they, they, they showed you they're not gonna spend. They're, the companies that can do these sorts of projects said, nah, we'd rather put our money to dividends. 36th consecutive year of dividend increase, by the way. Uh, we're gonna put our money to dividends and buybacks. You can you can buzz off. You you told us we're dying. You don't want us, uh, you don't want our oil anymore. You think we're polluters and all this. Okay, we're not gonna explore. We're just gonna produce what we have uh, and we're gonna stay there and uh, Hey, if you want to, if you want us to spend more money, either re-rate our stock or give us subsidies or give us hard multiples, right? It's, it's, it's as simple as that. So Chevron is the first one that's that's done this. I uh, I don't think the other companies are gonna be as aggressive, but I still look forward to other companies now have this like pressure on them to, to sort of stop spending on exploratory projects and just go back into this shareholder returns not forever, but but for a year or two, let the oil prices kind of get to a point where exploration is um, meaningfully profitable and, and let the companies re-rate re to a point where they actually hold some intrinsic value. So they've done these two things for me, which is, which is really exceptional. Uh, and I look forward to the other announcements from the other companies and, and what they're gonna do. And, and they don't have to announce 20% buybacks. So all they have to announce is that we're not gonna increase our CapEx budget by 50% because that's what we don't need. As much as the world would love that and the consumer would love that, um, that's one of the things that's missing from the oil and gas investment investors mindset is they just think as soon as oil prices go up, CapEx will start getting jacked up again. And if companies do that, the sector will lose its trust yet again at a time when it needs it the most. So. Uh, hey, I think the bad actors are are going to get punished. Uh, although, you know that 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 jury is is still yet to be uh, yet to be seen. Yeah, for sure. I just thought that was quite the announcement, and I thought I'd like to hear your opinion on that. Um, before I let you go, I'd really like to just hear a quick little blurb on Surge Energy, and I I bring that up because it's your second tied for second largest holding in your White Tundra account, and also your largest personal holding. So what is it about Surge that you that you like? Yeah, so Surge is very similar to Meg, except in the conventional space and a bit more complicated, for sure. So, uh, and by the way, on Meg, I, did, I forgot to mention this, two plus years of tax pool coverage. Surge, two plus years of tax pool coverage. So the reason why I like Surge so much is, is, is that, People look at Surge and they say, oh, they, they seem to be pretty fairly valued against their peers in this area. And uh, you know they've got very similar characteristics. It's a 25,000 barrel per day producer, BOE per day producer. And I go, yeah, but just like I said about China, you have to dig deeper into Surge to find what's really going on. And there's, there's two things that are going on. 
One is that they're drilling the best wells in their specific areas. So Southeast Saskatchewan and the Sparky, which is about now, I think about 70-ish, 75%-ish of their, of their overall production. They're drilling some of the best wells ever drilled in these two areas. And how did they do it? In Southeast Saskatchewan, they bought companies in 2021 where private equity wanted out and had exceptional reserve life. These companies had delineated nice pools, but private equity just wanted out. So they sold to Surge and Surge said, thank you very much. We will make the money off this throughout the cycle. And that's what they've done. They are drilling absolutely crazy wells in Southeast Saskatchewan that pay out, some of them pay out in 40 to 50 days and they pay out four to five to six times in the course of one year. So, you know, looking really, really good. That's at a $85, $90 environment. If we go even higher, obviously upside juice to that. And then the Sparky. Surge has used regular drilling, horizontal fracks. They've used multilateral drilling. They've used step out. They've done delineation. And they've taken the, the, the basin from about 1,000 barrels per day to almost, I want to say 12,000 barrels now is what they have in the Sparky. So, so they've really grown it organically, unlike Southeast Saskatchewan. They've delineated these pools. And when you find a pool, you get five, six, seven, 10 years of reserve life in that pool. So they have a monopolized ownership of the uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan sort of sparky belt. And they're just going to continue to make, make lots of money off this. Uh, very nice, cheap wells, low geologic risk. The odd well comes on so strong that it can pay out in less than a month and pay out seven to eight times in a year. So bonus on top. And just looking you know, really good from a technical, geologic, engineering standpoint which I can really, really appreciate. Uh, and the second thing that they've kind of showed me is what I talked about earlier, that they have undeveloped land. They ended up buying a bunch of prospective land with 2D seismic, 3D seismic, adjacent to other pools. And they said, leave it there. Just leave it there. When the market starts rewarding growth, when the market starts rewarding exploration, we'll go in, explore, and grow. And also, by the way, our Sparky and Southeast Sask uh, exploration is very cheap because it only costs us 1 to 1.2 million to drill wells, as opposed to shale wells in the Permian, which are 7, 8, 10, 12 million dollars, uh, shale wells in the Montney, which are now getting up to 7, 8, 10 million dollars, a Canadian, of course, wells in the Cardium that are 3, 4, 5 million dollars, right? There, there's a natural edge to having a cheaper exploration program and having higher upside because the pools are completely undeveloped. So I, I see these as, as things that are going to play out over time. Um, right now, Surge's PDP, crude developed producing 1P reserve, uh, at about a $73 strip is $24 a share. Today, we're at nine, nine something-ish. And uh, I can, I'll say this right now because I want this on record and maybe I can... Uh, uh, hopefully come back to this at some point in the future. But two years down the road, if Surge can prove out some of their acreage, the undeveloped acreage, and uh, the reserve evaluators run things at a $90, $95, $100 strip, Surge's net asset value will be north of $50 per share for sure. It will be possibly north of $75 per share. So 
you can see the hidden value there that gets reflected as they A, develop their acreage, and B, as oil prices go up and that torque, that natural torque comes into the company. So um, very happy with my position. I'm, I'm holding uh, long and strong and, uh, you know, I look forward to to let the team do their thing. I love I love teams that are, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, geologic and engineering nerds. That's who I want working my heavy oil and medium oil properties because, uh, hey, it's an engineer's and geologist uh, and a geologist cycle, um, as I've said earlier. Yeah, it totally makes sense when you just come back to the start of the pod where you said it's all about the rock and it's all about the ge- geology, right? Yeah. So. You know, you get the guys who know that business the best. Perhaps they're the best guys to run an oil and gas exploration company. Um, yeah, yes, with that yeah. being said, uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add or you can just, if anybody's interested, that, where they can find your content. Or, yeah, yeah, so I'm at uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at White Tundra SG. I also have my uh, website, whitetundra.ca. All my content is there, uh, completely free. I don't charge for anything. So if you get a Twitter message saying I'm offering a mentorship program or something, it's it's not true. Uh, everything is completely free, and and I think for those who are maybe new to the sector, uh, you're you're kind of wanting to know more. Uh, I have a macro session coming up uh, here on Sunday, so we're going to talk about some of the overall uh, supply demand factors that are going on, and then really dive deep into U.S. shale. So uh, I host seminars every Sunday, uh, or so you know, two or three or four Sundays a month. Uh, talking about different topics and uh, they're on zoom and they're on Twitter spaces as well. So please feel free to join in and uh, yeah, if there's any other questions I'm on Twitter or, or my email as well is uh, on my website. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. I, I'll make sure to tune into those for sure. And uh, thanks for coming on again. I'll have to get you back on. I'm, there's so many more things that uh, I need to talk to you about, but we only have so much time for, for episodes. So yeah, we'll get into it again. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you bet. No, thanks again. Great to be uh, back. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show, so do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.